So let me start with this. Let's jump into prayer. And then uh, let's review for a quick moment and then jump into the Word. So pray with me if you would, please. Father God in heaven, you are so beautiful. You are so wonderful. And I just want to tell you thank you for the honor of being able to take this day and love you and enjoy you and seek your face. I just ask you to do things, Lord, that you want to do. And it's exciting to know, God, that you want to speak to each of us, to our hearts, even as we sang, that you really want today to, to meet us right where we're at. God, and you know the challenges and the battles and the fears and the doubts and the questions that lurk in hearts represented here. And you know how to meet them all. And I just pray today that you would really bring total clarity. May we have so much fun in your scriptures. May we genuinely enjoy ourselves so much. And every one of us, may we be so glad we came. Please, Lord, do your work now. Redeem every second in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say tonight, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Anybody that claims to be authority beyond Scripture could be a danger because they have nothing to hold them in check and balance. Uh, I would say search the Scriptures and challenge everything that you hear from that. Well, the review, the beginning of this book, this beautiful book called The Gospel of Mark, starts with verse 1 that says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel. And gospel, by the way... Uh, it simply means good news. It's just what the word means. Uh, it starts with a messenger, John the Baptist. This guy, what we read, was prophesied about by at least two different prophets. Well, Mark quotes two of them. He quotes from the book of Malachi, Malachi, and he is Mechiat. And he is, it was written roughly 400 years before Jesus would set foot. Also, it, it, uh, Mark also quotes from the Gospel of Isaiah, which was written over 700 years before Jesus came. And it's one thing to say there's a guy that's going to show up and he's going to try to call himself something important. And it's another thing to say that there's another guy that's going to show up first. And these are two couple of things you might want to recognize. He's going to scream. He's going to be in the middle of nowhere. And he's basically going to be, in every essence, the wilderness. And none of that makes sense if you're going to start your PR of stepping out into the world and letting everyone know about you to start in the middle of nowhere. And God said that's exactly what it's going to happen. And he often does this. He gives us something that just doesn't make any sense so that when it does come to pass, you're like, wow, that must be God because I wouldn't have done it that way and it fully works out. I've learned this, that if you take what the scripture says literally, unless God tells us otherwise in the scripture, you just can't go wrong. So John came and he baptized the people with a baptism of repentance. The word re repentance, metanoecha, uh, in the Greek, means to change your mind. It's all it means. Now, truth be told, when you do change your mind, you will change everything that comes with it. I've learned this from, I used to fight competitively. And one of the things you learn is if you can turn a person's head, sooner or later the body's going to follow. And if you change your mind, the rest of you is going to go with it. If you remember in the story of the prodigal son, he came to himself and said, you know, even the servants in my father's household have it better than this. He changed his mind. He goes, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back and I'm going to talk to my dad and say, I'm not worthy to be called his son. Just make me a servant. I'd rather just serve in your house than be out here any other way. 
But when he changed his mind, he changed his direction that came with it. Once you change your mind, the rest of you follows. And that's what John the Baptist was telling people, is that the Lord is going to show up. And when he's going to show up, you guys need to change your mind now because you've been living in this self-reliant, self-righteous. And you and hear me on this, you don't even think you need a Savior. And that's the hard part of this. Is John was speaking, the difference between our culture, to be honest, and John's culture, is that John was speaking to a group of people who were religious, who genuinely believed because they did these religious observances, they didn't need a savior. But at least they were aware of sin. The culture we live in also doesn't think they need a savior. But for 300 years, we've been working really hard on redefining guilt so that if you could just feel good about yourself instead of feeling guilty. Are you trying to make me feel guilty? My question is, are you? And there's a problem with this idea that we can't feel guilty. Even though you can take that guilt and be forgiven for it, wouldn't it be just better to man up and be honest about your, your sins? Be honest about the fact you're faulty, but not in our culture. And if we think that right and wrong is a matter of interpretation, well, then why would you need a savior? I've just interpreted things that I don't do anything wrong. Well, it's funny. The same things you do, if people did them to you, you would think they were wrong. Now, the reason I say that is John is saying, as, by the way, people need to say today, man, you need to change your mind. You need a savior. Every human being on the planet needs a savior. Be him a pervert or the pope. Every human being needs a savior, and he needs the savior. So John baptized with water. And he said that there was one who was coming after him who would baptize in the Holy Spirit. The term baptize, baptizo, in the Greek, literally means to immerse or saturate. And the idea is that he isn't just that it's going to be some experience, but it's going to be a state. You are going to be completely consumed with God's own presence. Man, what a cool thing that is. So Jesus showed up and is baptized by John. As he does, the heavens open up. The Father testifies from heaven, endorsing Jesus, and the Holy Spirit comes upon him like a dove. Now, that's important because the first time a dove is mentioned is in Genesis 8.8, and it was to testify of a new and cleansed life to explore. So Jesus, after letting the world know that he is here, disappears then into the wilderness, where Adam and Eve were cast in Genesis 3, where the Israelites were wandering in Numbers 32.13, and where David fled from Saul in 1 Samuel 23.14. It's a place where the old life dies and transitions to a new life. And Adam took us then from the garden to the wilderness, but Jesus then takes us from the wilderness to the garden. Jesus is taking us back to give us back everything that we've lost. There's the beauty in it. He's tempted for 40 days, a number which often is used in regards to transitions or trials. Genesis 7 with the flood, 25 Genesis with Isaac marrying Moses in his, every stage of his life. He has three of them. He dies at 120. That's easy now. Exodus with the wilderness wanderings. Moses then in the cloud with the, getting the Ten Commandments for 10 days. I'm sorry, for 40 days. Exodus 24. And even birth is 40 days. And now John's been put in prison. John is the forerunner emerges, and then Jesus emerges. John, in essence, is a landmark for all of Jesus' ministry. He kind of shows himself, and then Jesus shows himself. John's put in prison. Jesus really now intensifies his public ministry. And then John is murdered, and then Jesus heads to the cross. And that takes us to our text now. Jesus begins his public ministry. 
having a talk with a lovely sister just just uh, this evening. The question is, how do you start something like this? I mean, when we think about Jesus ministering to the crowds, you have to realize he didn't start with that. It isn't like Jesus one day just woke up and said, anybody wants to come and put a sort of a sign out and put something out on Twitter, and then the next thing you know, thousands of people show up. Jesus starts somewhere. But even before the crowds become massive, Jesus starts recruiting from the very beginning. And we're, that's why we're only going through a few verses because I want us to see the glory of this beautiful thing and I want you to put yourself in this. Look at it with me, starting in verse 16. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, and that'll be on the other side of your page, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately, they immediately left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. It is important to start this to realize Jesus is well aware that he's going to change the world. This is God in the flesh, sent his only son of his only gene pool into the world to be the savior of all mankind, different from every other person. And please hear me, when we lay this foundation, we've got to start here. My daughter asked me, some of you heard this story before, my daughter, my youngest, when she was much younger, asked me, how many religions are in the world? And I prayed and I said, honey, there's really only two. There is the religion where man does all the work. He, whatever, that, whatever those standards are, he prays, he makes hajj, he does this, and he gives enough, and he does this for the poor, and he shaves his head, and he cleanses himself in this way. But he does all the work. And in the end of it all, somebody or something judges whether that's good enough. That's one religion. You just That's the template, add your things. Then there's the other one, where God so loved you, he did all the work. He sent his son to die on the cross when you were his enemy, when you were dead in your trespasses and sin, when you didn't want him at all. He did all the work. And Jesus came and he lived a perfect life, though tempted in every way, so he could sympathize with our weaknesses and took your sin and my sin upon himself and died on the cross there to pay for it. We did nothing to deserve it. By the way, unique to our, dare I say, religion, if you will, is grace. Because all grace is, is getting something you just will not deserve. And grace will never be about the deservedness of the recipient, or it wouldn't be grace. It is only about the kindness of the giver. In the first case, you're doing all the performing, so there isn't any grace necessary. There's a justice. And as long as you do enough, or whatever that is, hopefully it's going to get you somewhere. And the church can get messed up and try to put it back there. And it's such a crazy place to be when God's been in hot pursuit of you since the beginning. Oh, come on in. Don't worry. No one will know. Sneak on in. Shh. And from the very beginning of this, God has known you. He has wanted you. He's been chasing after you. And he even paid your price whether you say yes or no. In the first case, man does all the work and then this, whatever this other thing decides... In this case, God does all the work and you decide. And understand, this is what Jesus knows as he comes to earth and now he starts to recruit. 
Now think about if you were going to change the world, who you would hire, who you would draft, who you would then pull into your crew. I guarantee you, none of the guys who are closest to Jesus, chances are, would be the guys that make it on your list. And I love that. God is this way, this soft spot for the underdog. The person that people just go, well, if something amazing comes there, it's clearly God. And he pulls these people and he raises them up so that God doesn't have to compete for the credit with the individual he uses. Listen to what it says, for the way. One of my favorite verses, tattooed on my ankle for what it's worth, in Jeremiah 9, verse 23 and 24. It says, thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, nor the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness judgment and righteousness on the earth for in these things i delight says the lord god's like for all the mighty that could boast with their strength for all the rich that could boast in their riches for all the brilliant that can boast in their brilliance god says you know if you want to say something amazing let it be that you know me because that's what's really going to be important in the end In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27, it says this, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. Now, there are a lot of people out there that look really, really, really smart. And they can be intimidating. They can look down their nose at you even if they're shorter than you are. And they can talk without opening their mouth about how wise and smart they are and how much of an idiot you are. But when they say things like, there's no possible way I could believe in God and yet hate Him, I don't know about you, but it doesn't make any sense that you can hate something you don't believe in. I don't believe in the Easter Bunny, but I don't hate Him. How can I hate Him? He doesn't exist. I hope you realize that. He says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the strong. And the base things of the world. Now, a base. Where do you find the base of something? At the bottom. Dare I say, the bottom dwellers. Some of you actually, and dare I say it, know what that means. Some of you are kind of like, I'm kind of, I'm on top of the world. But some of you, you kind of know what it's like to be in the gutter and looking up at it. I want you to realize it doesn't scare God away. It actually draws him in. Now, don't go and do stupid things to think that God will be interested in you. He's already interested in you. The point is, is that God can use anyone. The one thing that's a variable is not your ability. It's your availability. And that's the problem. For some people that are out there, God could do with anyone because God is not limited by many or by few to save. He could do something. He could change the world through one human being and it could be you. The only thing that's in the balance is whether you're willing to let him. Not only the despise, the base, but he says also the despise and then the things that are not. Now, how in the world does that apply to us? We clearly are. Has anyone ever looked at you and said, you'll never amount to anything You'll never go anywhere. Well, then you're an R-naught. 
And good, good news, you qualify. You can't say, God wouldn't pick me. As a matter of fact, this is what Paul, the guy who writes, by the way, if you will, a third of the New Testament, this is what he says in 1 Timothy 1. This is a faithful saying that deserves full acceptance, that Christ Jesus died to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, or chief, all depends on your translation. The word is avake, like archangel. It means first, primary. But for that reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. In the simplest sense, what Paul said is, God chose me so that you couldn't say God wouldn't choose you. No, whatever excuse you want to use, someone's already tried it in Scripture and it didn't work. You could say you're too young, Jeremiah tried that. You could say I've had a filthy mouth, Isaiah tried that, and God grabbed a coal from the barbecue. You really want to pull that one on God? That's a rough one. No matter where you've come from, it, it just doesn't matter where you've come from. The issue is where are you willing to go? Now, with that in mind, Jesus is walking the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, by the way, is relatively unoccupied, especially the area where he is. Capernaum is in the north. That's roughly, if we were looking at it like a clock, that's roughly 11 o'clock. At 9 o'clock, if you will, there is Tiberias, and that is the one major Roman city on the western side where the Jews live, but they wouldn't go to Tiberias because it was Roman, and there were a lot of reasons why there. And Jesus is walking, and it's a relatively quiet place. It's a place where men make an honest living. Fishermen. Now, I know we live on an island, but the island is big enough. We really don't see the coast unless we drive or take a train. But I spent over 20 years, well, roughly, in a fishing village on the central coast of California. And you watch those guys in the blisters and the calluses they have on their hands. The only thing that's rougher than their hands is their language, just the same. And it's a rough, rough business. Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee and he sees four men in our story here. The first two are brothers, the second two are brothers, and they happen to be partners with each other. So it's a business. In that business, there are these two guys. The first two we read are Simon and Andrew. Notice it tells us that they're casting a net in verse 16. If we were to look at the second group of guys for what it's worth in verse 19, James, usually the older is listed first, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, <coughs> they were mending their nets. Two guys are still fishing. Two guys are fixing their nets. Now, note, undoubtedly, as you, and you're probably aware, that the most of the fish is done by drag netting. And the idea is quite simple. It's just a big net that has weights on the ends of it. And you throw everything but one end of it, and you hold on to the other end, and you let that whole thing sink. On the end that has the uh, weights on it also has a long string that's attached that you hold on to and you ultimately start pulling back that string to pull up the, the net and everything that's caught in, you pull in. What if there's a boot? Well, it comes in with it. What if there's a tire? It doesn't matter. You pull it. Now, what they're fishing for is tilapia. Tilapia is the main fish in, uh, in the Sea of Galilee. By the way, Sea of Galilee to this day is still 70% of all of Israel's drinking water as well. Uh, but that Sea of Galilee, they're pulling up a fish that God had invented that's afraid of light. 
And there's a couple of really important points to that. I mean, one of it, of course, is that's why they have to fish at night because the fish will come up higher because they're less frightened because the sunlight doesn't go because it's moon. The other thing, by the way, is that the, the, a, a fantastic little thing about these fish is that when they, um, when they have their babies, the babies hide in the mother's mouth. So anytime they're frightened, mom has to basically, in other words, get a mouthful of her children. Now, sooner or later, mom's had it. They've gotten a little bit big, and you know, mom's teeth are starting to hurt here. This is getting to be a real problem. So what she does is she tries to find something shiny because she knows their breed happens to be afraid of light. And she will often put a rock in her mouth or something that she thinks will reflect the light. And in doing that, it scares her kids away, so they finally ultimately fly the coop. That'll be important, by the way, when Peter has to go fishing and he finds a coin in the fish's mouth. You can imagine God invented the fish to do that so that he can get that tax money when he needed it for what it's worth. Now, put yourself in this story. Uh, now, there is a really important thing I need to do sort of to give a little bit of back, and we'll walk right straight through this. And that is that according to the way that we read it here, it almost looks like Jesus does this weird hypnotic thing with him, doesn't it? I mean, we don't have any record of him yet in the Gospel of Mark. This is the beginning of it. And all we read is Jesus kind of walks up to these two guys and he goes, follow me. And they're like, oh, must follow Jesus. Like it's some kind of ethereal, metaphysical thing. And they've never seen it before, but somehow they'd be like, but if you just could see his eyes. You'd know you have to, Well, nobody does that. Nobody's sane. What we need to recognize is that all four of these guys had a history with Jesus before this point. Jesus has already had some encounter with them. As a matter of fact, in Peter's case, it's a miraculous catch of fish that floors him. But it starts with these two guys. So let's start with them. The first one we read is Simon, and the second one we read is Andrew. I'll start with Andrew for a moment. And again, don't just believe me. Let me throw out some things for you. First of all, what we do know about Andrew is much. We first of all know that Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist. Now remember, all a disciple means is student. When John the Baptist was, John the Baptist was screaming, repent, he had students learning, okay, that's how you do it, repent. And they were there helping John baptize people for a baptism of repentance. We do know that one of them was named Andrew because in Gospel of John chapter 1, when Jesus is finally baptized, the next day he walks by and John goes, hey, hey, hey. Well, actually, after he comes back, he goes, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And two guys follow him. And as the two guys follow him, Jesus turns around to them and he goes, what are you looking for? I think it's a great question. What are you really looking for with this Jesus thing? You're just looking for peace? You're just looking for some kind of purpose, some kind of understanding? Are you looking for him? One of the two says, where are you staying? Which seems like such an odd question. But I love Jesus' answer. He just says, come and see. One thing I do love about Jesus is he's a come and see God. He's so unintimidated by who you are and he's so welcoming for you to go investigate him. It was late in the day, is what we read. And we read this, by the way, and that's all in John chapter 1, starting in verse 35. It tells us in verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. That's this guy. John had already said, that's your man you're looking for. Andrew was already going after him, and he's already spent the evening with him. And you know what he does right after that? In John 1:41, it says, the first thing he did is he found his own brother Simon. Remember, that's this other guy here. And he said to him, we have found the Messiah, 
Mashiach, which is translated to Christ, and he brought him to Jesus, and when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon Bar-Yona, you shall be called Kifas, which means rocky yoke. And that's the beginning of his relationship. Peter's first experience, Simon Peter's first experience with Jesus is because his brother dragged him over. And I remember, imagine the, the image I have is you've got this religious brother. That's Andrew, who, by the way, is always going to be in Scripture inviting people. He's going to be the one inviting the kid with the, the five loaves and the two fish in John chapter 6, verse 8. As Andrew says, hey, here's a kid with some food. He's the one when the, the Greeks, by the way, come in John 20, uh, 12, 21 to say, hey, we want to see Jesus. Andrew's the one who ultimately says, well, let's, let's do something about it. Philip finds Andrew, and Andrew says, hey, Jesus, these guys are looking for you. He's an inviter. So Andrew's been, I mean, imagine Simon Peter. You're just, you know, traditionally he's kind of a really big guy because he pulls in all these fish at the end of the Gospel of John. And, uh, and so John's kind of, or Peter's there, Simon Peter, and his brother kind of comes in and he's like, you know, he's been hanging out with that John the Baptist and he's been doing all that, you know, kind of all that religious stuff. And he comes in and he's like, oh, whoa, whoa, Peter, Peter. Simon, sorry, because he's not named Peter. Yet. Simon, I found him. The guy we're looking for. Remember how John's been saying he's going to show up soon? And John, you know, and I've been telling you that now for a while. Well, he's here and you need to go meet him. Peter's like, oy vey. And so off they go. Jesus looks and goes, Simon. I'm going to call you. And Simon, by the way, Shimon means he has heard. Simon, by the way, actually translates unstable. It's a pretty good name for him. But we're going to call you the rock. Now, maybe Jesus just knew that Peter needed to hear that right at the beginning. But understand, in Andrew's case, he was already hungry and he found it. But what Jesus did with Peter was he showed him his future right from the get-go. It's like, you don't realize it, but I'm going to turn you into this stable, awesome thing. But somewhere in all of that, they go back to going fishing. And, Peter goes, and Jesus goes back to his thing until the Gospel of Luke. As the Gospel of Luke starts to tell the story of Simon Peter in chapter 5, they had been fishing all night and caught nothing. And now they've pulled their boats to shore and Jesus starts to teach. And by this point, he's got a bit of a crowd. And as he's got a bit of a crowd, he doesn't want to get crushed. So he gets in Simon Peter's boat. Now remember, he's already had some encounter with him. And he's like, hey, Simon, launch out a little bit. Will you please? I need to teach. And imagine your workplace becomes Jesus' platform. Can I say that again? Your workplace becomes Jesus' platform. And he begins to teach. And imagine, Simon's stuck. It's his boat. He can't get out unless he wants to jump out and swim to shore, and that's more awkward. Maybe that's kind of how you feel at the moment. And, and somewhere in all of that, imagine Jesus is teaching, and we don't even have recorded what he's teaching, but then he turns to Simon because the school's still in session. And he goes, now let's go out a little deeper. And you can imagine... I mean, if you were Simon, you'd be like, okay, how soon before we get to shore? It's my boat. How soon? I've been up all night. How soon? And Jesus is like, no, let's go the other direction. You can see him going, what? Why? We've got some fishing to do. Hey, you know, you're pretty good at this whole teaching thing, but you've got to learn a few lessons about fish. Daytime is not the time to catch fish. And Jesus is like, and Peter does it. Well, and he goes, Nonetheless, since you request it, you realize what he's saying, right? I am doing this against my will and against my better judgment. 
But I want you to know, when we come up with nothing, this wasn't my idea. And as they catch this amazing catch of fish, which has to be absolutely miraculous, they pull the boat to shore. But before that, he falls to his knees. And he says, will you please leave me? I'm a sinful man. You know what Jesus says? There's no reason to be afraid. From now on, you're going to catch men. Now, please don't miss this. And we'll get on to our last two guys and close this up. All they knew was this. Throw the net low. The lower you throw the net, the more likely you're going to catch fish. Let's just be honest. And the lower you throw it, the bigger it's going to be. And you're going to have to pull it in and you'll sort through it later. That's all they knew. Throw the nets. Pull it in. They knew smell. I don't know how many of you have ever been around fishermen. It never smells good around them. Especially when they're working. And their hands. And now this commercial break. Sorry. And they know how to get their hands dirty. So they can handle smell. And they've got calloused hands. Now let me ask you. Do you want to start a, a business or a family? Because it's, the difference is with a business, you can start with a big bang and everything kind of happens and you just want to make sure everything's orderly and everything's fancy and everything's drawing and enticing. But a family's messy. Let's just be honest. It's messy. And it's all about people. So who would you recruit if you knew that Jesus could transform anyone? And you've got a guy that's been, if you'll pardon me for saying, who's been on a cot, and he's been laying in his own waist because he can't get up because he's paralyzed. Who exactly is going to pick up that cot and take him to Jesus? Somebody that can handle the smell. Somebody that's willing to have the hands that would be willing to carry it. And somebody that doesn't mind pulling. So who's going to be able to take a guy that's chained because he's a demoniac, a crazed person, and he's got chains? Who's got the hands to grab a guy's chains like that? A guy that knows what it's like to grab a rope and pull it. The brilliance of God in this. Please understand that the brilliance of God's ministry was in its simplicity. All you had to do was throw your net as low as you could and pull it all in and then let the master fisherman sort through it. That's the idea. In the Gospel of Matthew, where you see Jesus do this, the next thing we read is they brought to him those who were possessed and powerless, those who were paralyzed, and he healed them all. And the whole, listen, 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 please. This was ministry. If I could get you to Jesus, he could fix you. That's it. It didn't have to be, you didn't have to know even what the problem was. I'm sorry, what kind of mental illness is that? I'm sorry, what kind of problem is that? The bottom line was, if I could get you to Jesus, he could change you. I know he could, and I have that faith. I just need to get you there. And that's what they did. You know what they did is they threw their net as low as they could, and they brought in people. He goes, you know, you know how to do that with fish. Throw the net low. I think that there are some people, and they're like fly fishing for men. You know, we're only the ones that are at the top. If we could just get a couple really high-profile celebrities saved, well, you know what's going to happen? Then they become really unpopular. It's amazing how that works. Jesus is like, go to the place where nobody else will go and draw in the people that nobody else talks to and watch me transform them because when they change, 
people notice. So he looks at these two men and they've been casting their nets and that's what they're going to do. Peter's going to be responsible for watching thousands of people saved because you know what he does? He throws his net low and he just pulls it in. It's that simple. And he looks at them and he says, follow me. One quick thing and we'll move to the other two guys. The term for follow is the term duete. And duete is such a beautiful term. He doesn't just say go. He doesn't just say I'll meet you on the other side. The word literally means come and be with me where I go. Understand, Jesus isn't just inviting you on an adventure. He's inviting you on an adventure with him. And that's the difference. See, the most amazing adventure in all of this is that God himself, the God of eternity, who flung the stars into space, who marks the universe by the expanse of his hands and holds all of the seas in the hollow of it, looks at you and meets you and says, Hey, why don't you just come with me for the rest of eternity now? Let's go on an adventure. And these guys go, Okay, let's go. And Simon and Andrew do so. Notice, by the way, to follow him, I know I'm never going to walk alone. To follow him, I have to develop a relationship with him. To follow him means I actually am not the one steering this whole thing. And he will lead me. And he'll lead me to the beggar, into the leper, into the possessed, into the tax collector and the betrayer, into the storm, into the cross, into his murder. But he'll also lead me then to the healed and the cleansed and the sane and the transformed and the calmed and the empty grave, and the resurrection. But I have to be willing to follow him to do that. Let me ask you, are you willing to follow him? The great thing is, if you know he knows where he's going, you don't have to know much more than that, do you? You're like, as long as you know where you're going, I can follow you. So we went a little farther, and he saw two guys, James and John. James mentioned first, because assuming that he's the older one of the two of them. And he says the same thing. And immediately... <clears throat> He called them. They left their dad in the boat. The same, remember, they're the sons of Zebedee, so they left him. Dad, you can have the boat. Here are the servants, so you're not left in a bind. But they were net menders. They're going to be the opposite. Where some people are called, please hear me, to be the net casters, if you will. Others are going to be the ones to be the net menders. Some people are going to be out there throwing the nets and drawing people in. I don't know how you got here tonight, but somebody cast the net to get you here. But then there are going to be other people who are going to be net menders. The people who are actually going to make sure that that net's good. They're going to invest in the people once they do come, so you have something to come to. But understand, for all four of them, he's saying, I'm inviting you. Come follow me. Come on this adventure. Now, do they even realize what's going to happen to them? Do you realize, according to tradition, from what it's worth, Simon Peter, we do know a lot more about. He'll follow Jesus to that cross. Of course, he'll have a great failure there and then be restored. And then he'll follow Jesus to the Pentecost where 3,000 people give their life to Christ. And ultimately, he will make his way. He'll find his way in Rome and he will be crucified upside down. And he will do all of that. Does he have any clue that any of that's going to happen as he starts to say yes here? His brother Andrew, by the way, though there's no specific date given for when he was actually killed, it actually tells us, according to tradition, that he went to Scythia and to Greece, for what it's worth, in Asia Minor, and to a place called the Land of the Man-Eaters. Does anyone have any idea where that is? <laughs> the Soviet Union. That's the, you know, Russia. 
And he went to modern Turkey, and he himself was crucified. These are two men who, by the way, at any given moment could have denied Christ, and they would not have been crucified. But man, when they started following Jesus, ultimately, once he was resurrected, there was nothing but follow left. And I ask you, what's your reservation against following him? What do you really... What's keeping you from following Jesus where he would lead you? Are you afraid that somehow he would take you someplace worse than you are? Are you afraid that if you really just really went after him, that you would be disappointed? If these men were disappointed, they would have bailed on him a long time ago. John would call himself the disciple whom Jesus loved five times in his own gospel. He's the one who writes the gospel of John. And he's the one, by the way, the only one of the 12 who, by the way, has the martyrdom of a really long life. Where they keep trying to kill him and they couldn't kill him. And he dies over 100 years old of old age. Winds up on Patmos and we're thankful he lived that long because he gets the book of Revelation to write as a result of that. Interesting, his brother is the one who dies the youngest of them. He's the one guy that we have that actually is murdered in scripture. That's in the book of Acts chapter 12 where Herod Agrippa has a real problem with him and ultimately takes him and kills him in front of the people, sees that they like it, and he actually arrests Peter as a result of that and tries to have him arrested, or tries to have him killed. Here's the whole point of it. That of these men, they had decades upon decades to say no to Jesus after he said, follow me. And even in their failures, they would find themselves back and going, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to follow you. Tonight's just a simple invitation. Do you want to be a part of that first religion where you just hope that what you do is enough? How do you even know it's enough? And you work and you strive and you do your things and you make your pilgrimages and you visit your things and you kiss your relics and you own this thing and you give enough to this and that. But who in the world has the right to make those rules? How do you know? that that was somehow God-inspired versus something where we even read here, 400 years, 700 years prior, it was prophesied just about his first, about the coming of the man who came before Jesus. And then that Jesus would come out of Bethlehem, that he would be called a Nazarene, that there would be the slaughter of infants, and yet he'd be called out of Egypt. Put those things together. And yet they all work out completely and literally so. And that he would be called out out of the land of the Galilee, we know that, by the way, from the book of Isaiah, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And that there are over 300 different prophecies about Jesus coming that had been recorded, even in some cases, over three millennia beforehand. And the whole point is, is if God's to write it, well, he can do it outside of time and outside of a specific space. That's the difference between the scriptures of the Bible and anything else is that they're written by 40 different authors over a thousand miles away from each other, and yet in all of that it fits together in this beautiful one story that we're starting to look at here. Now, here's the thing as we go to prayer, and we're done. There is a God who is inviting you on a journey. He's not asking you to know everything. The one thing he wants you to memorize is the back of his head, because it's the one thing you're going to get to know well. Yet he will turn around and face you and teach you so much. I have given my life to Christ when I was 19. And I've chosen to follow him. And at 23, it was all out. And I'm comfortable to tell you that was more than a few years ago. And I have never, ever, ever been sorry about it. As we go to prayer, 
There's two groups of people I want to address here. First is anyone who's not sure they've ever said yes to the gift of Jesus. That gift that says God paid the price and he gives you the choice. Have you said yes to that payment? Because that's where it all starts. He says, come follow me. There has to be a yes. When Jesus goes and dies on the cross to pay for your bill and rise again and offer you a new life with him as your Lord, have you said yes to that? Because if you have said yes, then you're the second group. And my challenge to you is, are you willing to follow now? Not just take a stand and say, all right, I agreed with that one statement and I've done this thing. But are you willing to go on this adventure now and watch where he leads you? Watch the crazy places he takes you to. But he never leaves the place the same way as when he enters it. Have you noticed that? The place could be dark before he gets there, but once he gets there, it's no longer dark. The place could be wicked before it gets there, but once he gets there, it's no longer wicked. And he transforms, and he heals, and he resurrects, and he makes new, and he wants to do that with you. And he's saying, will you follow me? Understand, it looks like a command, follow me, but it's still a choice to be given. Will you follow him? That's why we call it a Christian walk, because you've got to walk it. And to do that, you've got to follow him. Will you pray with me? God, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful text and the challenge you set before us. For every person who's made claim to you, who said yes to you, who recognizes today that maybe they've, they can go back to a specific time when they, when they responded to an altar call or even was baptized, but recognize that it's so much more than that, that they don't have to know everything that they don't have to answer every question. But rather, if they're willing to just follow you, you will answer them as they walk. And I can't help but think all the way back with Abraham, at the time Abram, back in Genesis 12, when you just said, go to a land, I'll show you. But for that to happen, he had to follow you. For Israel to be led out of Egypt... And it was a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. They had to follow you. And I recognize so much of what's called Christianity just doesn't seem like it's following you. But God, I just pray tonight for every believer here, everyone who said yes to you. Say, Lord, as you reveal, let me follow. As you lead, let me follow. As you walk, let me follow. But if there be anyone in this room or at the sound of this voice who has not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, or maybe they're just not sure, you can be sure. The Bible says if you're willing to confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Tonight, that could be you. That's, that's Romans 10, 9, and 10, and it's, it couldn't be any clearer. He's paid the price and he's looking for permission. So I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And at the end of it, if you agree, I ask you to give a confident and resounding amen. And what you're saying is, yes, I agree with those words. Let them be mine. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I've done wrong. I've thought wrong. I have felt wrong. I've been wrong. I have sinned before you. And I stand with this guilt I have to do something with. But your scriptures say that you sent your son 
to pay that price, to take all of my guilt and shame and to pay for it at the cross. And there at the cross, he died for my sins. He was buried and with it, all my sins buried with it. And when he rose again, he offers me a brand new life. And you simply having done all the work, give me the choice to say yes or no. And I say yes. Yes to Jesus' gift. Yes to his payment on the cross. Yes to his lordship. Now make me new and let me follow you in Jesus' name. And if that is your prayer tonight, I ask you to say, Amen. God, you've heard our prayers tonight. You've heard these amens. Thank you so much for doing that. Now, lead us forward on this journey and adventure of life following you. Jesus, in your name. Amen.